the unknown at the moment of when are we going to open up things? Are we going to go down for more lockdowns? You know, this costs us money every time we do a lockdown. It's not, it's not just lock it down and start again. It's lock it down. You got to put capital in to start again. This is number four for us, really. There's a lot of lot of restaurants in the city opening up, hoping it's we're going to open soon. Well, we hope that we do, you know, but we just don't know, do we? This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. There are some restaurants that become institutions, kept in the same family over generations, the hub of a community. Some maintain that status even though new owners come on board because the model works, the location works, and the word of mouth fits. What's it like taking over an iconic restaurant and not only maintaining its success, but taking it into a new era too? Joe Pavlovich is the head chef and co-owner of Bondi Trap in Bondi, Sydney. Joe, how are you going? Good, Anthony. How are you? Good, mate. It's good to have you on the show. You, a couple of years ago now, you uh, took the keys to one of Sydney's institutions, Bondi Trap. What, what was it like taking on board something so iconic? Well, you know what? Um, I don't actually know the, too much of the history. I mean, of the Bondi Trap. We lived... When I first got to Australia, I lived in Bondi for 10 years. I probably only saw the bars for that, for that period of time <laughs> uh, and working in the city more than Bondi. But, you know, going through all the archives and stuff, Bondi Trat's been around for such a long time and, and means a lot to a lot of people, you know. There's been families growing up there. There's, you know, people met there and gone on their first dates. Um, you know, it's been there now 30 year plus years, you know. It's, it's, it's a long time. Mm. Was there an obligation to keep Bondi Trats similar and keep dishes on board when you first took it over? Oh, look, you know, we took over with a plan to modernise it a little bit. Do you know what I mean? It probably was a bit stale. Um, they, you know, the job, you know, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, Andy left and, um, and, and, you know, it was probably hard for them to find a, a constant head chef and, you know, they just sort of kept running sort of same menus and stuff like that. Uh, not that it's bad, but, you know, it probably got a bit stale. Um, and we came in with a thought of, you know, let's revamp the whole thing. Um, locals didn't like it. <laughs> and, we were, and we were told ceremoniously, put shit back on. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, which was quite devastating coming from, you know, doing a lot of different things and a lot of restaurants to being told, where the hell's my bolognese? Where the hell's my gnocchi now? <laughs> Okay, so that took us a year to for it to sink in properly to to revamp to our style of what it used to be. Um, so yeah, so it was a tough year. Uh, I think it was a tough year. It had been a tough few years for that restaurant anyway, and we'd kept the name and kept you know the branding and everything like that. So a lot of people didn't even know we had taken over and still thought it was old owners. And to this day, I still get a lot of people coming in going, you know. Where's Matt and where's Ross? And, well, they've been gone for four years. So, I mean, that's probably – we wanted to keep that brand. I mean, it's iconic, really, for Bondi, you know. So, you know, we started revamping. So we went back and we, we've done it, you know, to tell you the truth, last year when we got locked down again, or for the first time, I should say, um, we sort of revamped it all again. And, and, and I think we've found the balance now of keeping – keeping locals happy and keeping people that want something interesting happy. 
Do you know what I mean? Because there's a thin line. You know, you're going to lose the people that want something a bit different if you're going too simple. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, we've had to compromise and it's been quite challenging, I, I must say. Your career is earmarked as uh, with so many amazing restaurants. You're the head chef of um, some of Australia's best restaurants, but this is the first time you went out on your own um, with your business partner, Alistair. Uh, what, what drove that decision to create your own restaurant? Oh, look, you know, I'd been working for Luke Mangan for 16, 17 years, you know. We'd, uh, you know, I'd seen it from one restaurant, two restaurants, three restaurants, to one restaurant, to 22 restaurants. Do you know what I mean? Worldwide sort of thing. So, you know, it was great. And, you know, we, you know, I've seen a lot of things and done a lot of things. But, you know, it was time. Do you know what I mean? I always wanted to do my own thing. Um, it was just time. Do you know what I mean? I just, uh, you know, if I'm 40-something I'm now, if I wasn't going to do it, you know, I'm, I can't see my body pushing it along at 50, 55, 60. So, it had to be now or never sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, so we decided Alistair was sort of the GM of the group and he had sort of just left. And I said, hey, let's do it. And then we had a friend who's always said, oh, look, we'll go thirds in a restaurant, and, you know, for the last 20 years. And I was like, no, no, no. And I said, look, it's time. And he's like, yep, it's time. So, you know, we, we took it on and went for gold. But, you know, we probably brought at the peak of – hospitality and, you know, rents were high and everything like that. And then, you know, along came COVID, boom. <laughs> well, S- Sydney is in a lockdown at the moment. How, how different is this compared to that first lockdown over a year ago for you and Bondi Trap? Oh, look, we've actually done three sort of lockdowns or four sort of lockdowns now. Um, obviously the first one and then the, the Manly Cluster at Christmas, which was devastating because, you know, you lose all that Christmas trade, and we lost the whole lot, pretty much. And then about six weeks ago, we had that um, gentleman, a good regular of ours, come in, and he had COVID as well with the first strain of the Delta. So we were closed for three days and had to get everyone tested. And then again, you know, so look, the first time, devastating. Didn't know what the hell to do. Um, you know, it's very hard for us to do takeaway. We've got the ocean in front of us, so there's no catchment there. And we've got some houses behind us, you know, so it's our catchment is very small. You know, it's people wanting to either go to the beach, come to us or make a trip to come to us. But, you know, the housing around us is apartments. Yes, but they're not, you know, our catchment is very small. So take away very crap. Do you know what I mean? And we, we did it. We did it because the government was helping out and stuff like that. So we could afford to do it. Uh, the Christmas one, devastating. You know, it was like we went lockdown, but it was like a lockdown. Um, you know, lost massive trade. You know, we went, I think we lost 500 bookings in a week. Uh, you know, and for a small restaurant at Christmas, that's devastating. Um, and that didn't really pick up till about February, really. And then, you know, February picked up slowly. March was going good. April was going good. And then we got that little bump in the road with a, a visit and closed down for three days. And that was just before Mother's Day. So we ju- we opened on Mother's Day, thank God. Uh, we had a lot of cancellations, but we had picked up a lot. So people were sort of getting used to the idea of this lockdown system, which was good. I think people are getting used to it. You know, the re- resilience of once you reopen, the bookings start coming in straight away, whereas the first one, people were hesitant uh, and, and a lot of respect to start, you know, especially because we get a lot of older generation 
that have probably been going there for years and they really don't want to come in. Do you know what I mean? Until they know things are clear. And then, you know, and then this one. So we started doing takeaway last week. Just not into it. It's just, uh, you know, we're opening, we're paying, for, you know, we, we need to keep staff as well. So it's been very difficult in that respect because we've got a lot of overseas students who some of them don't get help, some of them do. So some of them have gone doing cleaning jobs and stuff like that just to earn some money. Do you know what I mean? So we decided we, we needed to close um, and, and, you know, and just consolidate and see where things are heading because, you know, everyone's talking about another two weeks. Who knows? We don't know. No one knows, you know. Prime Minister came out and said, you know, we're going to open it up, but, you know, we don't know, actually know when that is. So we thought we'd better just lock it down a bit and just see what happens. So it's been quite difficult, to tell you the truth. I would love to go into all of the restaurants that you worked at throughout your career shortly, but what was food like for you as a kid? Uh, well, I grew on a farm, so we never brought – I mean, it's that old thing. When you're on a farm, you don't buy anything, but I actually didn't – we didn't buy any vegetables until I was probably 15. We grew everything. Wow. Um, so we grew corn, fields of corn. We had a big farms, so, you know, we're milk dairy farmers, so you get up 4 o'clock in the morning, go milk the cows, maybe go to school when you're about 10 plus. And then come home and farm chores. So, um, yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, paddocks of potatoes. My old man used to make us wet, wet the potatoes with a hose, like a garden hose. And I'm talking like it's a paddock of potatoes. And you'd be on a Sunday beating down the sun. You'd get the shits because all your friends are playing. And you'd just sort of skim over the, the potatoes so it looked wet. And he'd come put his finger in the dirt and see how far your actual water had hit and make you do it again, stuff like that. You know, they're hardcore farmers, so... You know, we killed all beasts, um, lamb, pigs, grew, we grew it all. So, yeah, so we didn't really see a broad vegetable until I was about 15 or 16. So it was great. My mum was a good cook, so old creation. So we had a lot of creation recipes and, you know, we bottled everything, like tomato sauce even, um, beetroots. We just bottled everything, peaches, pears. Yeah, so we grew up doing a lot of that, old school styles. You mentioned the Croatian connection. What, what's some of the feasts that you have fond memories of? Definitely lamb on the spit, do you know what I mean? Uh, roast potatoes in the spit, you know, hand hand turning though. Um, no machine back in the early days because you'd sit there and have to hand turn it, which was a bit of a pain in the ass. Um, later on down the track, they, you know, the machine sort of coming out, which was great, but... Yeah, you know, and, and a lot of desserts. You know, mum would make a lot of desserts and stuff like that and a lot of cakes and things like that, which was great, you know. Um, boiled fish with sultanas and onions and a lot of Croatian stuff, which was great, but a lot of European stuff because they, they were – their parents had migrated to New Zealand, so they were brought up sort of half New Zealand ways, half Croatian ways, if you know what I mean. What lured you to a career in hospitality? Um, didn't want to milk cows. Um, <laughs> thought, thought getting up four o'clock in the morning and coming home at seven o'clock was terrible. So little did I know. Um, and then, and then my my mum said, "Look, you you know you 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 like peeling all the vegetables and you like doing this." So I slowly cooked dinner at home, like simple stuff. And we come from a small town, so I had to go to the to Auckland. So I was about four and a half hours away, and then just. First of all, I was 17, walked the streets in a suit looking for kitchen hand jobs because, you know, presentation was everything to my parents. Uh, landed a job on the day and the guy said, can you start straight away? So I was washing dishes in my suit, which was great. 
Um, and then in a small restaurant, did that for three months, thought it was Charlie Bananas. And then uh, I thought I thought I'd better go and look for a, a bigger company um, to get into So because I needed to start cooking, not just washing hands. So I started um, I found a kitchen hand job in a place called Kermitic, which was the best restaurant in its day in Auckland. Uh, well, one of them. Um, it was a big seafood restaurant. It was owned by um, Simonoviches who had the rights to all Scampi in New Zealand, so them and another business. So Scampi was coming out my ears. Um, so I did that. I did kitchen hand for about three, four months, started an apprenticeship, went back and started an apprenticeship with them, which was great. It had a bra- it was quite a unique um, place. It was in the viaduct. Um, it was a brasserie, a fine dining restaurant, and had two tatami rooms. So we had a lot of Japanese chefs, and the and the, the chef was from I think the Hyatt Takashi, and he had sort of opened it up. So he had amazing. He was like chef of the year in New Zealand five years, like something ridiculous. You know what I mean? So he was amazing, and you know these two tatami rooms are sort of iconic for the place, and they're beautiful setting. One was sand, and one was like a water fountain. There's koi swimming around, so it's you know pretty amazing. And so the Japanese chefs would do their things, and then the brasserie is more European, and the restaurant was more um, sort of fine dining uh, fish. It was all fish, sort of pretty much. So we saw a lot of different. Like, you know, them owning a fisheries was out of control. So, yeah, so that was great. And then decided to come to Australia. Um, I had sort of been set up um, along the lines to go to the region back then because I knew um, a guy called Philip Beauchamp who was F&B manager at the region in the day. Um, and that was when Serge was still there. So I did that for two years at Cables. Uh, I think they had just dropped from three to two hats. And that's 97 to 99. They decided to close. Well, that was amazing. I mean, that's the last, let's say, that's the last recognised hotel brigade, I think, would, that would have been in Australia at the time. There was 86 chefs. There was chocolate room. There was bakeries, people, you know, bakers at overnight, proper bakers. You know what I mean? Ice cream room where you know, we made ice cream for the whole hotel. as a room for ice cream. Uh, uh, you know, it was just, you know, the brigades were big. Uh, it's just run like a European hotel still. Um, that sort of fell apart once it turned into Four Seasons because American brands come along and they want to cut costs, which is fine. Do you know what I mean? So cable sort of dissolved. It's, it was there, but it didn't have, you know, Serge had left, you know, had gone to bathers and, you know, cables had sort of, gone down the pecking order and that was around for many years do you know what I mean as an institution really and that's day so what was Serge like to to work with oh look he was in the office a lot let's just say he had you know he was happy writing his books and stuff like that <laughs> you know it's, it's, he, he was finished cooking he had he had lieutenants now do you know what I mean lots of good lieutenants who he didn't even look at the food probably do you know what I mean it was just he left it up to the guys they were running a guy called Terence Rego, who was nighttime, and a guy called I can't even think uh, uh, can't even think of his name who did the day. So I was a night team guy, but you'd start, you know night team would start at eight o'clock in the morning to get ready for dinner, sort of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was, you know, it's he, look. I think he, he definitely steered that hotel in the right direction. He'd been there for a long time. He was a marketing tool for them for sure. Um, you know. I've heard stories of the GM, you know, he wanted to leave once and the GM sat him down and said, oh, look, I'll just give you an extra, 
whatever hundred thousand or whatever it was, and all he did was raise the prices of the banquets up four dollars. Do you know I mean just because because people would come and dine at that hotel for surge? Do you know I mean let's be honest, he's a marketing tool. So why, you know, give him his extra fifty or whatever hundred thousand, keep him there, and then you're going to get X amount of functions. All you're doing is rising your pr- prices up three four dollars. That covers the costs. Yeah, you know I mean, so it's very smart by them. Mm. So yeah. So, so that restaurant ended up winding up. Where, where did you go to from there? I, I opened up a little, help open up a little place called Lotel in Darling Hill. So I was only there for three months, and then it was Lotel before, and then it went to a boutique hotel. It was bought by some Jewish people. Um, so I'd, uh, my old head chef had gone there to open it up, and he said, "Come over." And I said, "Yeah, cool, okay. I've got nothing else really to do at the moment." And then I, uh, I had a friend who had just started at the establishment when it had first opened in 2000, 2000. He was in the banquets and he said, look, the guys in Est are looking for staff. And I said, perfect. So I went there, met with a guy called Matt Fleming, um, great chef. Probably had a bit of a raw deal there. Um, and, you know, I did a year there and then decided oh, I've, I've had enough of fine, you know, that fine dining grind. Wanted to get into sort of French bistro stuff like that, which I sort of loved anyway. That was sort of my background of, you know, the food I liked. And I remember looking around and there was a Genevieve Copeland had, uh, what was it, um, a Bon Femme. And it really sounded great. And I would make sure I would ring, because obviously home phone, so you'd ring uh, between the hours of... of uh, <laughs> of, of uh, service, so make sure you don't ring during service. I rang at 3.30. She came on the phone told me to fuck off, and I was like, oh, sweet. <laughs> so I won't be working there. Um, and then a friend of mine said, oh, look, uh, there's a place called Bistro Lulu that's open up French. You know, it's doing decent food. And I didn't even know of Luke Mangan then or anything like that, so I went down. I got the job. Um, it, was, it was good. So it's sort of French-English at the time. The, the chef was English. So it's sort of Frenchy little mashup of English food, which was great and fine. And then he had a bit of an accident um, on, a, on a moped, which nearly killed him. And they said, do you want to take over? And I said, sure. Um, so I took over. I was 21, 22, took over. And, um, yeah, and then the rest is history. So I obviously met Luke through that. Um, and then he decided to open Glass in 2005. So he had to wind up all his other restaurants because, uh, you know, you could only do that one for a few years and, you know, in the city. So we went to Glass, which was whew, a monster. Uh, would have been one of the bigger restaurants in its day. Um, I just remember uh, opening that place up, well, well um, doing 350 for lunch and 300 for dinner. It was, a, it was a bit of a nightmare, do you know what I mean, um, for the first three months because we'd just never seen those kind of numbers before and food going through the place and it, just how the hotel was set up was not ideal either. Uh, but before that, they'd sent me to France because it was supposed to be French themed. So I did three months in France, travelling around, working at some, some amazing places. Yeah, so, you know, open glass. And then the sort of rest got history. And, you know, we opened restaurants around the world, San Fran, Tokyo, Maldives, Singapore, Jakarta. Do you know what I mean? It was great. Take us back to Bistro Lulu. There was a, quite an amazing alumni of young chefs that came out of that. Can you tell us about this, the chefs that you worked with and who came from there? Well, uh, you know, a guy called Ben Milgate, everyone sort of knows, Portino boy. 
Um, he was he was a, a sort of a junior, so sort of chef de party then. He was a young guy. I was a young guy, and um, he was just he was going to leave. He had started there and he didn't really like it, and it wasn't his thing. And he was about to leave, and then after this accident, I said, "Look, mate, do you want to be sous chef? You know, we'll work together." Blah blah blah. So he stayed with me for a couple of years. Ben, um, amazing guy, amazing cook. Even then, you could tell he was going to be amazing. Um, and then he sort of left and did some traveling. But, you know, we've had pastry chefs through there, which are great. Um, yeah. So he was one of the bigger bigger names that, you know, that had worked for me there. And then Glass has been quite a few as well. So Tell us about Glass. It's a huge restaurant. As you mentioned, the volume that you were doing in a hotel was, was huge. But it, was, it set a really high benchmark as well. What was it like trying to balance quality with high volume? Hard. Very hard. Um, you know, you got 14, 15 chefs working, trying to trying to get everything together. Some of them are good cooks, some of them aren't, some of them don't want to be there, some of them do. You know, it's it's a normal challenge. You know, I mean, not everyone wants to be superstars or good cooks. Some people are just there for the money, so you, it can be frustrating to get the best out of people. Yeah, I could, you know, you get, it sort of makes you angry sometimes, and I used to get angry. I still probably do a little bit, but that's, you know, tell me what chef doesn't, and and, you know, for perfection, there's different ways of showing it, you know. So to get a hat there for doing those kind of numbers, I thought was amazing. Probably, you know, to keep the standard, it took a lot, a lot of time and effort. And, you know, the hotel for the first year was probably hardest because the hotel wanted us to be in one direction. I said, Luke, we can't do this direction. This is not us. We need to go to what we know best, the style of food we know best, and that started creeping in a little bit more Asian flavors, just a little bit more relaxed, not strictly just French, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, because we sort of, you know, our first review wasn't great, more of an attack on Luke than anything, but, uh, yeah, our first review wasn't great, and then, you know, we just got better and better, but it's, it's very hard opening big restaurants, and anyone that says it isn't dreaming, you know, big restaurants are just... Hard to maintain, hard to keep the standards, floor, kitchen, and you think you get it right and then some key people leave and, yeah, it's tough. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You've opened venues in Auckland, Sydney, Singapore, Bali, Jakarta, Tokyo, the Maldives. Do you have any um, stories from these travels and the challenges of opening these restaurants? Probably the Maldives were the hardest. That was so hard, you know, because we were doing the whole F&B operation and, you know, we're probably doing with very difficult partners at the time who were a bit all over the shop and, you know, just, uh, you know, I got there with two months to go. You'd been, you know, we'd been working on this project for a year. I got there with probably two months before opening and it was a mess. Nothing was built yet. Like, everything was built, but nothing had been finished properly and, you know, staff was a massive issue. We were supposed to have 80 chefs and I had three. Um, there were some people moving sort of in between the countries and which was really bad and stuff like that. So we actually opened the, the, the property with only five chefs out of, out of 85. So I'd probably have two hours sleep because we – look, we didn't have many guests, but we had guests coming on and we nearly put put the whole project off for three months because – the place was a bit wasn't ready to open, really. Um, you know, food takes 
two weeks. So you have to order two weeks prior to get your food, to get your head around that shit. It's, you know, how do you know what you're going to sell? How much you're going to use? Yeah, I mean, we just were in the unknown a little bit. And, uh, yeah, that was the toughest. But having shortage of staff with – we had five, six restaurants and five chefs. So we just <laughs> – and they wanted everything open. They wanted everything open. So if we got an order in one, I'd have to send someone up to go and do that order or I'd have to yeah, breakfast, lunch, dinner, amenities, nightmare, nightmare, nightmare. So it, it slowly got better, but it was still very difficult. Um, that, that's the most challenging sort of uh, venue I've ever, ever come across, for sure, for sure. You mentioned the challenges of striking that balance between pleasing the locals of an iconic location at Bondi Trat and also finding your own voice and, and offering there. Tell us about your cooking now. What, what sort of things are you, are you cooking? What exemplifies it? Well, now, right now, uh, we're, just, we're just keeping it simple. You know, I've, it's, it's funny. I've sort of, you know, Neil Perry's sort of had that blue water grill and, you know, I've sort of seen interviews where he sort of said, he kept it simple because they only had three or four in the kitchen. That's what we have. And you do high numbers. So he just, you know, piece of fish with a dressing. You know, it wasn't, you know, you're not trying to rewrite the cookbook. You're just trying to make, you know, as long as the piece of fish is cooked amazing and the dressing's nice, people like that. Do you know what I mean? So I sort of went off what he had sort of said in his interviews and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, it's a good idea, you know, because I was probably trying too hard at the beginning, you know, puree this, do that, you know, South feed this, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, no, no, this is not working. It's, you know, it's too hard. It's, I'm going to kill myself here. So, and I'm going to kill the staff basically by trying to push them too much. It's, 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 you know, it's a seaside restaurant. People just want simple stuff. So it's a big menu, but it's been broken down to make it quite easy. Um, I mean, we can do 600 people in a day between five of us. So it's that ethos of keep it simple, make sure the flavors are good. And yeah, so possibly not the food I want to be cooking, but it's the food I'm cooking for that restaurant now to make it work, if you know what I mean. Now that you have your own venue, what do you love about what you do? Um, look, I still like teaching. Yeah, you know, I've always liked the idea of teaching chefs how to cook. Um, and, and watching them grow, that's, that's a massive enjoyment for me. Um, and, and I, you know, just talking to, being in the same venue, which I was at Glass anyway, but just having, you know, getting that rapport with the customers, you know, go out, have a chat to your local. We get a lot of regulars, a lot of local regulars that come three, four nights a week because they bring their kids and they have, you know, the kids have a $10 spag bowl or pizza and the parents can have some bugs or whatever, you know what I mean? So we get a lot of that where they just pop down, quick meal, go. So you go say hello and just that rapport. It's taken a long time to get the rapport with the locals because, um, you know, they're used to certain things, but we, we're slowly getting there, which is great, you know, and we've got a great fan base now because I think the locals had sort of gone away for the last few years before we took over because – indifference cooking and stuff like that but i think they're coming back which is good and we've sort of got you know nice people which has been great given your experience of opening multiple venues with the Lugmangan group is that something that you've thought about uh, with your own restaurant uh yeah we've flirted with the idea a few times um and we still do in our minds, but it's just the un the unknown at the moment of when are we going to open up things, you know. Are we going to go down for more lockdowns? You know, this costs us money every time we do a lockdown. 
it's it's not it's not just lock it down and start again. It's lock it down. You got to put capital in to start again. This is number four for us, really. You got to keep going. You know, you got yeah. So we, until we know, you know, what's happening and no more lockdowns, you know, and when when are we going to see tourists coming through? That's the big thing, you know. It's there's a lot of lot of restaurants in the city opening up, hoping it's we're going to open soon. It's well, we hope we do, you know, but we just don't know, do we? I know you like to strike a balance with uh, your family and work, but what, what sort of impact has the stress of the last year and a half had on on you? Probably seen the kids more, to tell you the honest truth, being at home. Uh, um, it, look, it's been it's just a financial stress, really. I mean. Just opening and closing, you know. Um, being with the kids, though, like I have spent a lot of time with the kids this last year and a half, you know, through the lockdowns. We, you know, we're in lockdown. We've closed for the next week, so they're on school holidays, which is great. So, yes, we can't go and do heaps of stuff, but we're actually spending great family time. We cook during the day if they want to cook. We go for a walk. Um, we just talk. Do you know what I mean? Just chat, you know, and and – and, and that's the best part, just spending time, quality time. It doesn't have to be going out on big holidays and stuff like that, but just spending one-on-one time with them, that's the best part. You mentioned there is a certain level of uncertainty and we're waiting for some uh, announcements this week. How do you feel about uh, the next sort of six months with the restaurant and the reliance on tourism and, and sort of what's going on at the moment? Um, well, I mean, vaccination's massive, isn't it? Everyone's got to get vaccinated, but there's not enough vaccines in the country. So there's a hindrance there. You know, the Prime Minister's come out and said, we're going to open it up in six months. But, you know, does he really mean that? Well, you know, I, until it's, it's, it's week by week. Realistically, it's still week by week. Even though he's come out at the beginning of the week and said all these things, it's week by week, you know. Are they going to reopen on Friday? You know, at what time do they tell you? You know, you got to you got to open the restaurant. So if they tell you Thursday or they tell you Friday morning, you can open Saturday. It's not really enough time to to get everything ready, is it? So, yeah, I don't think they know. Honestly, I don't think they know. I, I think they're just playing it as much as we are and just telling us what we sort of want to hear. But they don't know. I mean, Europe's opened up fully, pretty much. People can travel from America to Europe. Um, they're 50%, what's America, 40 or 50% vaccinated, England 70% vaccinated, you know, we've got a long way to go, we're 5% and without vaccines coming, you know, we've got vaccines coming into the month but we need a steady flow of these vaccines, otherwise they're not going to let us out of the country unless you've got some serious cash and pay the business class tickets out, you know. Well, hopefully we do move forward and vaccinations all happen, but what do you what are you most looking forward to as we move forward beyond this? Normality. I know it could maybe it'll never be normal again, but just the normality of life, you know what I mean? Of not being in fear that we're going to lock down next week or, you know, there's a new variant of this, you know, we've gone COVID and, you know, there probably is going to be, uh, through the years, going to be like a flu, isn't it? We're going to need booster shots for the rest of our lives, possibly. Do you know? So, you know, just normality, opening up, seeing people come back into this country, being safe, feeling safe, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, this thing of people on ventilation and all that hopefully goes away and it just becomes like a, a, a strain of the flu, you know? 
Well, Joe, uh, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Congratulations what you've done at Bondi Trap and look forward to seeing what you do in the future as well. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, Huck. Thanks, Rob. Uh, you guys, you know, I haven't listened to every podcast you've done, but I've listened to a lot and you guys have done an, uh, an amazing job, you know, to get everyone's stories out there and, you know, and, and it's just amazing. Thanks very much. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.